Well, today we're going to begin what we might call a run to the cross. Um, this morning we'll begin in John 17. We'll continue through chapters 18, 19, and 20, the death and resurrection of Christ. And we are, Lord willing, going to end up at the resurrection right on Resurrection Sunday, right on Easter Sunday a couple of months from now. But to accomplish that and to also really saturate ourselves in what is the very center of our faith, the death and resurrection of Christ, beginning in two Sundays, we will focus our attention in John's gospel both Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And so starting January 26th, we'll take a break from the Pentateuch on Sunday evenings until after Resurrection Sunday. Next two Sunday nights, tonight and the following, we will finish the book of Leviticus. But after that, it is John all the way to Easter Sunday, and we're looking forward to that. Well, we have had our official scripture reading for this morning already, and if you're already settled in, forgive me, but I want to have a stand together. We are going to read John chapter 17. Let's stand as we read, arguably, the greatest prayer in all the Bible. John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, 
and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You may be seated. John Knox, who is the Scottish theologian and pastor, 16th century, born about 1514, died in 1572. He was the leader of the Protestant Reformation in Scotland. He was the founder of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland and His call to ministry happened in a very unusual way and an unusual time. This was during a time when it was very dangerous to be a preacher of the gospel. It it cost you greatly. And Knox was in an early Protestant service in his 30s, listening to a sermon by John Ruff. And John Ruff was preaching on the calling of pastoral ministry. And in the middle of his sermon... John Ruff pointed at John Knox and said, You, sir, I believe are called to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Well, before John Knox could protest, the congregation, apparently knowing John Knox, all affirmed him and said, Yes, and amen. Knox was shaken. He knew what it meant in that day to be a preacher of the gospel. He was reduced to tears. And he eventually submitted to what he believed was a divine call on his life to preach the true gospel. Well, he wasted no time. He preached vehemently against the abuses of Catholic heresy. He wrote fiery tracts and articles against legalism. He suffered for his preaching. He was imprisoned. He was enslaved on a French warship as a rower. He was in danger from Bloody Mary, the Catholic Queen of England who was killing Protestant pastors. Well, eventually he became good friends with the French reformer, John Calvin. Calvin was only five years older than Knox, and Calvin was a great admirer of Knox. He believed that Knox was really one of the most important contributors to the Great Reformation. Knox's typical practice in preaching was to spend a half hour calmly and quietly explaining the details of a text of Scripture And then as he applied his text to his hearers, to his congregation, and to Scotland, he became emotional and vigorous and fiery. It was like watching two different men preach. First you had the lecture, and then the beast came out in the pulpit. One of his church members who took notes at each sermon wrote, quote, He made me so quake and tremble that I could not hold my pen to write. His preaching was purely to glorify God and the truth of God's word and the doctrines of grace. Never did he preach to please any man, but only to please God. In fact, at his graveside service, one man stood before Knox's grave and said, quote, here lies a man who neither flattered nor feared any flesh. But in the days before his death in 1572, as he was on his deathbed, he asked his wife to read, the one Bible passage that he knew would give him the most assurance and comfort that he is about to see his Lord and Savior. And so repeatedly, Knox's wife read to him the great high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. 
as recorded in John 17. And in God's grace, in one of those readings, just as she finished verse 26, he breathed his last. Literally going from hearing the words of Christ to seeing the face of Christ. Out of the over 1,100 chapters of the Bible, that was the one Knox picked to give him assurance. John 17 has been called the greatest prayer in all the Bible. It is the true Lord's Prayer, much more so than the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. It's so lofty, it's so magnificent that great preachers of many eras in the past have said it is too fearful to even preach this text, that it should be just simply read. Many expository preachers have gone from John 16 to 18 too fearful to preach this. Others maybe have had an opposite view and reduced John 17 merely to lessons on how we ought to pray and certainly we can derive some understanding on how we're to pray, but I would maintain you've missed the whole point of John 17 if it's merely a lesson on how to pray. This prayer of Jesus Christ is often called the great high priestly prayer because he beseeches his heavenly father on our behalf, in our place. It's the greatest recorded prayer specifically for you, especially from verse 20 onward in all of the Bible. And it's noteworthy that John 17 doesn't simply say, and Jesus prayed aloud in front of his disciples. Instead, this masterpiece of a prayer is recorded in all of its glory for us right after Jesus delivered his stunning farewell address of chapters 14 through 16. In fact, one 17th century preacher wrote of John 17 he said, quote, it is the greatest prayer that was ever offered on earth and it followed the greatest sermon that was ever preached on earth. Now, there's so many ways we could look at John 17, so many nuances and details. For example, we could consider the importance of the glory of God in John 17. We could consider the relationship of the Father and the Son in this chapter, or we could think on the tenderness of Christ's love for his disciples and for all that would believe in him. So many ways we could look at it. But there is clearly one overriding theme. There is one obvious emphasis, which if we ignored that, it would almost make a mockery of this holiest of all prayers. And that emphasis is the assurance of salvation given to the believer in Jesus Christ. And so that's going to be our emphasis as we walk through John 17 together over the next weeks. And one of our most well-known hymns written in 1873 by Fanny Crosby is Blessed Assurance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. And in response to this assurance of salvation, I'll let half of you know the chorus. Sing it with me. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Isn't that embedded in our hearts so beautifully? Blessed assurance. And so that's what we'll call this series in John 17, Blessed Assurance. Because I want every one of you who know Christ to walk every moment of every day in total confidence of your heavenly future 26 verses, infinite depth, divine knowledge. We're going to take 14 messages to look at these 26 verses. If you complain about this, David Martin Lloyd-Jones took 65 messages. So 
This is easy. He did that in the 50s, and people had a longer attention span back then. We're going to try to just glean off the top a little bit of the magnificence of this prayer. And so, as I often do to introduce a longer text or a book, I'd like to give you some preparatory thoughts for this series in John 17, and it works well, as we've done in the past, to simply divide these thoughts into some questions to ask and answer. So here's what we're going to do for the remainder of our time, just to begin to get your mind thinking right about John 17. There are four questions. Why is John 17 important? How will it benefit me? What do I need to know about John 17? And how are we going to approach this text? Easy questions, and I'll repeat them for you as we go. I'm going to give you a short answer and a longer answer to each of those questions. So our first question, why is John 17 important? And we're going to spend most of our time this morning on this question. Why is John 17 important? Here's the short answer. Because you can't afford to guess about your eternal destiny. You cannot afford to guess. You cannot afford to be on your deathbed and wonder what's about to happen. Verse 3. Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the answer to the question that humanity has been asking for millennia. How can I live forever? Now, every major culture on earth has tried to answer that question, and they failed. And one of the main reasons that they failed is because they've never had anyone like Jesus who's been on the other side of death and been able to come back and tell them what to expect how to survive their own death. And so instead, humanity resorts to mythology, to fables, to fairy tales. And because we have nothing else to believe in, humanity takes it as fact and places their eternal hope and eternal destiny in these fables, inventing gods who may or may not be able to help them. The Egyptians, for example, believed that after death, they would go to an afterlife similar to this world, but it wasn't guaranteed. They believe that you had to successfully make it through a dangerous underworld journey and face a final judgment from Egyptian gods. And this is why the dead were buried with things to help them on this journey, such as food, clothing, and weapons. The Romans had a fairly complicated belief system concerning the afterlife. After you died, you were supposedly sent to one of three places. If you were particularly bad, you were sent to Tartarus, to be tortured by the Furies until your debt to society was paid, and then you were sent to one of the other two places, either the fields of Elysium or the plains of Asphodel. The Greeks were similar to the Romans, but with the Greeks there was an added layer that your life after death depended solely on how much your memory continued on in the land of the living. The better you were remembered on earth, the more pleasant your afterlife experience was to be. Thus, Uh, You had people making statues of themselves and trying to uh, create these great exploits of daring do because they wanted to be remembered. The Vikings didn't have much of a written system, but their oral tradition is very well known. The noble warrior went to Valhalla if they were brave, but most went to a place called Hell, just one L, H-E-L, in which you were reunited with your family to do pretty much what Vikings did, eat, drink, fight, sleep, and practice magic. That's what you were supposed to do. Islam teaches that one must believe in Allah, a false god, by the way, not not the name of the true god. 
teaches that you must believe in Allah and that your good deeds must outweigh your bad deeds on the coming day of judgment. And there's no way to know in this life whether your good deeds outweighed your bad. And so extreme acts of faithfulness, such as fighting or dying for the cause of Allah, get a guaranteed passage to paradise. The Quran, chapter 9, makes this very clear. And you say, well, those are just kind of ancient belief systems. We have them today. Our post-Christian culture today still carries vestiges of biblical thoughts in that most people believe in a heaven of some sort, and pretty much everybody believes they're going there. Most people believe in a hell of some sort, and nobody believes they're going there. And that basically, by being a good person, you will go to heaven, and only the very, very wicked go to hell. Now, what do all those systems have in common? There's some sort of judgment. There's a division of people. A good afterlife is achieved by good and noble works on earth. And all are based in a belief on a God or gods who are fickle, who are angry, who are incapable of true love and incapable of true justice. What do I mean by that? None of the false gods of all human history is truly capable of love. Because the mythology describing them describes them as capricious and erratic gods who had nobody to love until mankind was created. And so, by definition, they love only themselves. But the triune God is love. And he has always loved within the three persons of the Trinity. And, by the way, none of these false gods could possibly be just either. Since any reward in the afterlife is based on your good deeds outweighing your bad. What's the problem with that? The problem is that who's going to make your bad deeds go away? How can somebody do enough good deeds to make up for adultery or theft or murder? You cannot do enough good deeds to raise somebody back to life. You can't undo the sin. As a matter of fact, we don't even believe in this concept in this life. No one in his right mind would say that a judge should let a murderer go free because he had been a Boy Scout. Nobody would say that. And yet, that's the typical prevailing belief system concerning God. The God of the Bible is just. Listen, sin will always be brought to account. Sin will always be paid for, either by the sinner or by our just God placing the payment of that sin upon the shoulders and the back of His Son, Jesus Christ, in our place. Justice will always be served. And so the question of eternal life then is not bound up in doing good deeds. Our good deeds are worthless before God. They don't do anything to undo the bad. But rather, the question of eternal life is bound up simply in knowing God. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So now that you know that fact, the burning question in the heart of the Christian then, okay, do I have eternal life? Do I know the true God? Do I know Jesus Christ whom God has sent? Am I truly saved? Was my faith enough? Did I sin too much? Have I only fooled myself into believing that I was saved? Is my faith genuine? When my heart is fluttering and my eyes are getting ready to close for the last time, am I really saved? Those are soul-shaking questions which plague Christians. Now, to a certain degree, those are good questions to ask. Paul warned the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. 
Three times the book of Hebrews warns those who believe themselves to be Christians or who are perhaps on the verge of saving faith, do not harden your hearts. The Apostle John warns of false believers. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 1 John 2.19 and Jesus himself, of course, warns of self-deceived false believers. In Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the last series I preached in John, John 16 and 17, we called it Costly Christianity because that portion of Jesus' farewell address very clearly proves that true followers of Christ incur cost, not to gain salvation, salvation is free, but the cost to follow Christ, that true believers will suffer, true believers will take up their cross and follow him. So those warnings are explicit, they're needful, Countless false Christians will be judged by God for their failure to heed those warnings and their failure to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ savingly. But here's how we ought to think of those warnings. Those warnings are made broadly. They're made generally to all who would even mildly associate themselves with Jesus Christ. Those who attend church. Those who say, I believe in God. Those who have convinced themselves of their own self-righteousness. But then... Jesus gathers his own and he closes the door and knowing fully all who are his and in this room, for example, are only believers. Those that he calls in John chapter 10, his sheep who hear and know his voice. Now the tone changes tremendously. Now, instead of warnings against false faith, In John 17, the Lord Jesus gives overwhelming and and frankly almost redundant and repetitive assurance of the genuineness of our conversion and the certainty of our future after our own deaths. To know that you know that you know the only true God. To know that you know that you know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so what we're talking about then is assurance of salvation. And we should point out that there's a difference between assurance of salvation and security of salvation. The security of your salvation is something you have whether you know it or not. The door is locked whether you know it or not. But the assurance of salvation is the knowledge of your security. Does that make sense? Security is yours whether you believe it or not. Assurance is yours by believing security. Now, sometimes security, or we would also call this theologically the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, sometimes security is intermingled with assurance into the commonly used phrase, once saved, always saved. You've heard that before, right? And this is, of course, true. But the phrase, once saved, always saved, is as often as not a phrase used by those who believe that you can, in fact, lose your salvation. And they use that phrase in an insulting manner. We don't like those people who say, once saved, always saved, is what they would say. Now, the focus of this series is not so much on the security and preservation part of our salvation But we should point out briefly some of the fallacies of the position that a true Christian can, in fact, become an unbeliever once again. We we don't want to believe that. It's, It's not logical. It's not true. So let me just briefly give you some of the arguments that they would use. They would say, for example, the Holy Spirit can be taken away from you. That once indwelt, the Holy Spirit can be taken away. And they cite one whole verse from Psalm 5111 where David says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, this is, of course, King David asking for forgiveness after committing murder and adultery. 
But David wasn't asking to stay saved. He was asking to stay the king. In the context of the kingship of Israel, he was asking God to continue blessing his reign as king. How do we know this? Well, 1 Samuel 16, when the prophet Samuel anointed David as a young man, as the next king of Israel, verse 13 says, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Because that was one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was special empowerment to specific people for specific tasks. David was not making a statement of asking to maintain salvation. He was making a statement asking to be continue to be blessed as the king. Those who say you can lose your salvation might also say this, that you must keep yourself pure to maintain salvation. You must keep yourself pure to maintain salvation. And they cite, for example, Jude verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Or they might cite 1 Timothy 5.22, keep yourself pure. Well, there's an easy problem with this. This is simply a case of mixing up the pursuit of holiness with having the power to keep your own salvation. In fact, in Jude, keep yourselves in the love of God. If they would just read three verses later, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. According to Jude, who keeps your salvation? God does, not you. And they might also say, you must hear his voice and follow him all the way to the end. And quoting John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And this is true. The true child of God has responded to the voice of Christ revealed in the gospel. But nowhere does this say that the Christian can stop hearing his voice or the Christian can stop following him. Text doesn't say that. In fact, the view that you can lose your salvation has major problems. Let me give you a few. First of all, this view diminishes the power of God and it elevates the power of man. It diminishes God and elevates man. It ultimately falls into the same category as the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, the Vikings, Islam. That if you're good enough, you will be received. Now, what's the obvious problem with that? The obvious problem is that how do you know? How do you know? This puts the God of the Bible on the same level as false gods, which is the height of idolatry. The second problem with this view, it muddies the gospel to the point of being unrecognizable and illogical. The gospel presentation in this view goes something like this. Come to Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, be washed in the blood of Jesus, receive his grace freely, and now that you're saved freely, work really hard to maintain what you couldn't achieve in the first place. What? It doesn't make sense. Or as Paul challenged the Galatian churches, Galatians 3, 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Are you so foolish is biblical for you're an idiot. It makes no sense. There's a third problem with this view. The view that the true Christian can lose his salvation is represented by inconsistent and low-grade Bible study methods. By amateur Bible study methods. It is really the ultimate grievance of what we call proof texting. Taking verses out of their context and not interpreting them in the, in the light of the rest of Scripture. It's another problem with this view. A fourth problem this view is precisely what leads men to deceive themselves and die in their sin as unsaved church attenders. 
This is the view that does that. Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do so many mighty works in your name? In other words, didn't we maintain what we thought we had? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. The fifth problem for this view, even for the true Christian, the regenerate Christian who has been taught that you must maintain your salvation, this teaching always leads to only one of two possible conclusions. It either leads to arrogance because you believe you are maintaining your salvation or it leads to fear because you're not sure whether you're able to maintain your salvation and both arrogance and fear are sinful before God. This destroys true assurance. It, it, it undermines our confidence. And now you're no better off than anyone else who thinks that they must earn God's favor. Listen, I, I know we're not talking about security for this whole series, but I just want to say this. The idea that the true believer can lose his salvation is disproven by several key doctrines of grace. And in fact, any of the doctrines of grace alone can say, I'll take it on. All by itself. I'll give you a couple of examples. The doctrine of regeneration alone presu- pr- disproves any thought of being able to lose genuine salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What, what's hard to understand about that? The doctrine of justification alone can step forward and say, I'll take it on all by myself. Romans 5, 9, since therefore, past tense, we have now been justified. The doctrine of election alone can step forward and say, I'll take it on. Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him yesterday, today, no, before the foundation of the world. You're not going to undo that. The doctrine of personal eschatology, that's what happens to you personally at the end. That alone can step forward and say, I'll disprove this wicked foe. Colossians 3, 3 and 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where's Christ? He's in heaven. Your life is hidden there with him. Good luck trying to take it back. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Not might appear, not hopefully appear, not I really am praying that you will appear. You will appear with him in glory. So if we, were, if we were personifying the doctrines of grace, they're all clamoring to say, I alone can take on that false doctrine. Now, if we had time, proving that true salvation is permanent is really an almost overwhelming task, uh, not because it's hard to prove, but because you don't know where to start. All you have to do is let the pages of your New Testament fall open, pretty much, and you can prove the doctrine of assurance. We could, for example, start at 1 John 5, 11, and this is the testimony that God, past tense, gave us eternal life. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, not hope, not guess, not think, but know. Or we could go to John three thirty six that we read this morning, whoever believes in the Son has, possesses eternal life. We could go to John five twenty four. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has, past tense, passed from death to life. We could go to Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we could, of course, go to the final linchpin, Romans 8, 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, but if I had a bad attitude toward my husband, I might lose my salvation. Or how about John 6.37? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And listen, those are just taste tests. Those are just samples of the flood of evidence in Scripture concerning the security of your salvation. And yet, despite the overwhelming biblical evidence, assurance eludes so many Christians. And so that brings us to our second question. I'm going to go faster now. How will this study in John 17 benefit me? How will this study in John 17 benefit me? Here's my short answer. As a Christian, you can live and die with confidence based on objective evidence. As a Christian, you can live and die with confidence in your heavenly future, based on objective evidence. Now, to help us understand why John 17 is so important for us, I want to make a quick note which will guide us throughout the rest of this series. To be very precise, Jesus starts off praying specifically for the 11 apostles. Judas has left him earlier in this evening. Verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then he continues praying specifically for the apostles in verses 13 through 19. But then look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? That's you. That's you. Now, notice that Jesus does not say, now that I've prayed for the apostles, let me make some requests for all those who will believe in my name, requests that are new, that are different, that are completely in a different category. No, he says, what I've just asked for these men, I am also asking for all who will believe. And a careful examination of verses 13 through 19 shows us that Jesus is not asking for anything specifically apostolic. He's not asking for the doing of miracles. He's not asking for special revelation from God but just requests which can apply to all of us. Verse 13, he asks for joy. Verse 15, he asks for protection from Satan. Verse 17, for sanctification in the word of God. And so we may confidently apply all of John 17 to ourselves. Now, I told you that the short answer to the question, how will John 17 benefit me, is as a Christian, you can live and die with confidence based on objective evidence. This is where we run into another common catchphrase, eternal security. Eternal security, again, which is true, but it perhaps falls short of a proper explanation. The phrase eternal security doesn't encompass the the full-orbed ideas of God's preservation, the saints' perseverance because of God's preservation, and it tends to be associated with a shallow gospel assurance. Listen carefully. 
the phrase eternal security tends to be associated with a, a shallow gospel presentation which, in which assurance is not based on truths of Scripture but on an experience. On a one-time prayer that you said or an evangelistic worship service or a feeling. This is why we do not espouse a so-called sinner's prayer. A, because there's no example of one in the Bible and B, because it gives false assurance. Just pray this prayer. Amen. Great. Now you're a Christian. You do not have the right to give assurance to somebody else. Only Scripture has that right. But the doctrine of assurance says that our certainty comes not from looking back at a historical moment in time, but from the decrees and the promises of God. Why? Because your experiences will fool you. There will be people in hell who came forward and knelt at an altar at an evangelistic service. Your experience will fool you. And in fact, your subsequent life might fool you as well. If we use only experience to judge whether or not you're saved, then you can be subject to all kinds of doubts. Our our daily discouragements and struggles with sin can cause doubt. You ever had that thought? Gee, this is the nine millionth time I've committed this sin. I wonder when the last one will be. A feeble gospel which says that God saves you, but you're 100% responsible to keep your salvation, that can cause doubt. Pastors who preach that you must work to keep your salvation should be removed from their pulpits. How about this one? Not understanding that justification is immediate and sanctification is ongoing. That can cause doubt. Choosing to willfully live in a sinful state, that will cause doubt. That will forfeit your assurance. It will forfeit the confidence, by the way, that others have in you as a Christian as well. It is no sadder thing for me to tell somebody who says, I don't know if I'm a Christian, for me to say, I don't know either. I can't tell by looking. How about habitually being angry and unforgiving toward others? You cannot have assurance of salvation if you're doing that. Suffering, that can lead us to the wrong conclusion that God is out to get us, and that can cause doubt. You might say, "I, I must not be saved because every time I turn the corner, God nails me with something. He must be punishing me. Now, we don't want false assurance. There's a reason that the Christian choosing to willingly live in a sinful state cannot have assurance. Why? Because he's living like an unbeliever. But neither do we want false fear. Neither false assurance or false fear is pleasing to God. So how should this series benefit you? By giving you objective evidence of the security of your salvation so that you might have full assurance. Now, my goal over these coming weeks is not so much to have you test your salvation. We already did that in John 15 and 16, but it will be happening to you. You will be testing your own heart. But my goal, rather, is to give you the objective assurances given by the Savior, not the emotional, experiential assurances that that we so often want, that we want to point back to, well, I was seven years old and I prayed a prayer. I'm going to hang my hat on that. You're going to hang your whole eternity on something that you can barely remember? But American evangelicalism basically teaches if you had an experience, you must be saved. Tell that to those in Matthew 7 who said, Lord, Lord, did we not? Now, these evidences we're going to present have nothing to do with how you feel. They have nothing to do with how you behaved today. 
have nothing to do with what kind of suffering you're undergoing. There's nothing subjective at all. This is the Lord Jesus Christ overwhelming us with confidence that the day we take our last breath to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. The third question. What do I need to know about John 17? What do I need to know about John 17? Here's a short answer. A lot. This is not only the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. It's full. It's rich. It could be a study of of well over a year or two. But I want to give you a few helpful thoughts to try to help you wrap your minds around this amazing prayer. We're going to start big and then we'll work down to a couple of important details. Just just to kind of build a context here for you. Uh, The first big helpful thought, big picture. This prayer is a summary of the Gospel of John to this point. This prayer summarizes John's gospel. It includes important themes from John's gospel, such as Jesus' obedience to his Father, the glorification of the Father through Christ's death, the revelation of God himself in Christ, the choosing of the disciples out of the world, their mission to the world, the unity of the disciples modeled after the unity of God the Father and God the Son, the final destiny of believers in the presence of the Father and of the Son. In fact, if you were about to read John's gospel again, and you wanted a refresher, an introduction on what themes you can expect to see, read John 17, because it tells you everything you'll see in chapters 1 through 16. Here's a second helpful thought, still staying with the big picture. This prayer is the final crescendo into the climactic finale of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the high note right before the final loud orchestra coming in to proclaim the death and resurrection of christ john 129 the next day he that is john the baptist saw jesus coming toward him and said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world john 17 2 you have given them authority over all flesh to give eternal life all the way back in john 1 34 and i have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of god john 17 1 father the hour has come glorify your son Back in John 3, 14 and 15, the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. John 17, 20, I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in Me. John 6, 51, 57 and 58, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. The living Father sent Me. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. John 17, verse 3, he identifies himself as Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, so that those who will know him will live forever. John 10, verse 11, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. The coming death of Christ is the primary event that Jesus speaks of here in John 17, 1. The hour has come. What is he speaking of? The glorification of Christ through the cross. John 11 Beginning in verse 49, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, unknowingly prophesied, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He goes on to say, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. John 17, 19, Jesus said, For their sake I consecrate myself, meaning he set himself apart to die for the sins of all who would believe in him. And having consecrated himself to die, 
in carrying out the perfect will of his Father, and having prayed this prayer, John 18, now the climax of the entire book, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This prayer gives our crescendo, the giant high note before the orchestra all plays the glorious symphony of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. So it's the summary of John's gospel. It's the final crescendo into the death and resurrection of Christ. Let's narrow our focus a little bit more. This is vitally connected to the farewell address of chapters 14, 15, and 16. These, the, the, they go together. There are link words, there's concepts which appear in both the farewell address and in this prayer of Christ. I'll just give you a few examples, and there's many, many more. The theme of believe. John 14, 1, believe in God, believe also in me. John 17, 8, they have believed. The theme of the deity of Christ. John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 17, 11, Jesus says to the Father that we are one. Verse 5, he speaks of the glory that he had with the Father before the world ever existed. How about the theme of the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit? When we study John 16, 22, so also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again. We saw that the best understanding of this promise is that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ is coming to them soon at Pentecost. And of course, here in our prayer, John 17, 23, Jesus says that the way followers of Christ will be one is I in them. The indwelling of the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. In John 15, 18, the world will hate the disciples because they love Christ. In verse 19, he tells them, you are not of this world. And in his prayer, verse 14, the world has hated them because they are not of this world. Basically, for everything that Jesus prays in chapter 17, you can find correlating material in his great sermon, the farewell address of chapters 14, 15, and 16. By the way, a little side note. Very often in seminary, preachers are taught that when you pray at the end of your message, you shouldn't just pray what you've just preached. Jesus would say otherwise, because that's exactly what he did. So it's the summary of John's gospel. It's the final crescendo to the death and resurrection of Christ. It's vitally connected to the farewell address. Let's narrow it down now to John 17 itself. Just some interesting things for us to understand. The literary structure of John 17 is complex. It's ornate. It's multi-layered. It's infinite. And it gives glory to a very complex God. Let me just show you what I mean by this. For example, there's a clear three-part structure to this prayer. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Beginning in verse 6, Jesus prays for his disciples. And beginning in verse 20, Jesus prays for all of us, for all believers. That's obvious. 
But there's also a seven-part structure based on seven petitions or requests of Christ. The first petition speaks of glorification and mission. You don't have to write all this down. It's just interesting. The second petition, beginning in verse 4, the return to glory. The third petition, beginning in verse 9, prayer for the protection of God's representatives. The fourth petition, beginning in verse 16, prayer for the holiness of God's representatives. The fifth petition, beginning in verse 20, prayer for unity in our mission. The sixth petition, beginning in verse 24, prayer for believers to reach their heavenly destiny. And the seventh petition, the love of the Father to be in all the saints, beginning in verse 25. So you could easily do this from a three-part outline, a seven-part outline. But there's also what some have called a proverbial structure to John 17, meaning that Jesus covers many different topics, repeating them in different places. Why would they call this a proverbial structure? You ever read the book of Proverbs? It's like, why don't they just put all the stuff in the same subject in the same chapter? Because God wants you to learn it by repetition over and over again. In other words, if you want to glean all that Jesus prays on a particular subject, you have to look at all 26 verses. For example, if you want to glean the glory of the Father, you have to look at verses 1, 3, 4, 6, 11, 25, and 26. If you want to look at the glory of the Son, you have to look at verses 1, 5, 10, 22, and 24. If you want to look at the sovereignty of God, you have to look at verses 1, 4, 7, and 18. To put it this way, in musical terms, John 17 is like a song written in three, four, or five different keys that all miraculously work together. And you can choose which key you want to listen to at any given time or you can listen to them all at once. It's the summary of John's gospel. It's the crescendo to the death and resurrection of Christ. It's connected vitally to the farewell address. The structure is complex and ornate to the glory of God. One last little detail now, a little tiny detail really key to understanding this text. Jesus uses the term world four different ways in 26 verses. This is an important word in this prayer. He uses the term world 18 times in 26 verses. What are the four meanings? Very quickly, first meaning the world, the actual world, the earth that we're standing on. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Creation, the earth. But he also uses the term world to mean every unbeliever on earth. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Why is he not praying for every unbeliever that will never believe? Because they're never going to believe. They're not chosen. That's another topic for that day. So there's the actual earth. There's every unbeliever on earth. He also uses it to mean the system of unbelief on earth. Verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And finally, not only does he use it of the actual earth, every unbeliever on earth, the system of unbelief on earth, but he also uses world of every future Christian on earth. Verse 21 He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Every potential believer. So that's important. That helps you understand this chapter. All right. 
Why is John 17 important? How will it benefit me? What do I need to know about John 17? How are we going to approach this text? Short answer, slowly. Slowly and carefully. Remember I showed you that we can see divisions in three parts, seven parts, a proverbial structure, which Jesus covers so many different subjects. Well, we're going to use the proverbial structure, this last method. Rather than going verse by verse, we will cover every single word in the text. We did verses 3 and 20 today, but we'll do so topically. And remember I said earlier that my goal is not so much to have you test your salvation, but rather to give you objective assurances given by the Savior Versus the usual emotional, experiential assurances that are typically touted in evangelicalism, evangelicalism based in feelings and experience, not on truth. And so that necessitates us covering John 17 topically to observe these evidences. But I want to give you these evidences now. You don't have to write this down. These are the evidences we're going to look at. The true Christian can be assured of salvation Because of the Father's glory, because of the Son's glory, because of the Father's sovereignty, because of the Father's choice, because of the Son's authority, because of the Word's power, because of the Trinity's protection, because of the Church's unity, because of the Son's work, because of the Saint's rebirth, number 11, because of the Father's love, because of the Son's prayers, and because of the Saint's glory. In other words, John 17 will give you overwhelming objective evidence that when you take that last breath and when your heart fails and when your organs begin to shut down and when you know that your last words are actually your last words, that with confidence the Lord Jesus Christ 13 times over has said, grab a hold of my hand, I will not let go. And so my hope and my prayer is that this prayer becomes a part of your heart and a part of your soul. And in fact... At the beginning of every message, we're going to do what we did today. We're going to stand together and we're going to read John 17 so that when we're done, we have read it aloud together 14 times. So my prayer is that your assurance of salvation, your confidence in the saving work of Jesus Christ becomes so steadfast, so secure, so bound to the promises of God that never again will you fear for your eternal destiny. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for John 17. It is a a gleaming diamond of hope. And we are thankful to you for the Lord Jesus Christ astonishingly taking time before he's about to be betrayed and arrested to pray this prayer aloud. And yes, he spends a few verses praying for himself, but the majority of the prayer is is for us. And he takes this time, Lord, to selflessly think of us and to demonstrate the overwhelming confidence that we can have in Christ. That when he said, I will never cast you out, he meant it. And so, Lord, we give you praise and honor for that. And now, Lord, as we come to the Lord's table to remember the cross of Christ, I pray that you would really... In this high point of Christian worship, I pray that you would hone our hearts to be those who would take the Lord's table with the sobriety and the joy with which it was meant to be celebrated. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.